Jesus knows your thoughts. Does he not? So as you all open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, I have a, a question, particularly for some of the children here. Do you know who this picture is of? Yeah, it's a time delay. Children, you know who that is? Of course, the answer is, everyone? The president who led our nation through the Civil War, who led a divided nation, and through that, the history books record a very important statement which he is said to have uttered. A nation divided itself cannot... Well, today we're going to read that that idea is not original to Abraham Lincoln, but rather it comes from one far greater, a much better man than Lincoln. So again, Luke chapter 11, if you're using the, the Bibles in front of you, um, it's on page 817, and we will start in verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's our passage this morning. And if you're like me, you talk about a passage that has no lack of interesting things. It brings up quite a few questions, does it not? But it doesn't 
give us a lot of answers to some of those questions that it may bring up. And this morning, we simply just don't have the time. In fact, the text doesn't even give us all of the answers to the questions that we may have about demons and waterless places and all of these fascinating things. But Jesus himself actually, although he doesn't give us the details, he gives us a few primary points. What he himself, what God has found sufficient for our life and godliness, after all, um, is what will be in focus here um, this morning. And so let's keep the main view, the main thing, the main thing here um, today. And so with that, who here found verse 1 rather interesting? It's a little bit different than most of the other miracles we read. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And then the demon leaves, the man speaks, and that's it. It's kind of interesting because typically there are a few more details in the miracles, aren't there? Typically the miracle is what's in view, but here it's what Jesus says after the miracle. Parents, you know what this is like. It's teaching opportunities with your kids. The emphasis is not on what just happened or the previous scenario or the circumstance, we say, all right, time out. Let me push pause and just walk you through. Let me teach you something about life. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, okay, he's using the miracle as a platform for a teaching opportunity. And that's precisely what follows. And so the second half of verse one, three things happen. What? The demon leaves, the man speaks, and then what do all the people around do? They marvel. You see, they recognize that there is some sort of demonstration of power. There is something outside of just the human Jesus that enabled this demon to leave or to be cast out. And that word marvel in the original language also means to wonder, to be astonished, And these people were astonished, right? Here's the point. Marveling, no matter where you, however you fall down on a particular situation, marveling leads you to do something. You can't just look up and marvel and not be drawn to some sort of conclusion about what just happened. And that's precisely what's going on here. The people who witness are recognizing that there's something else here at play. Some sort of power is happening, and they marvel. It's really a question of where that marveling leads them. Because that power has to come from someone other than just human terms. And so, this morning, we will see three responses to this miracle and to Jesus' words. We'll see three responses to how people marveled at this Jesus guy. The first response we see in verse 15. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that's kind of interesting language, isn't it? The prince of demons. Who is this Beelzebul guy? Well, At the very least, we see he's the prince of demons, right? So he's some royal or hierarchy in the demonic forces. Perhaps he is even Satan himself. 
And some of you, your Bibles might say Beelzebub. It's just nowhere talking about the same guy. It comes up with how things were translated from the original manuscripts. But Beelzebub, Beelzebul, same guy. And um, if you have a twisted mind like me, you, uh, you think that Beelzebub has kind of a ring to it. And you're like, man, that would make a really good pet name. And then you realize that, yes, it would be a very sick and twisted, unless it's for a dog, then it might actually be rather fitting. Um, <laughs> yes, I had to go there. Um, but no, Beelzebul or Beelzebub, we're talking about the same guy. Very well, maybe Satan himself. And we see that these people say, you cast out this demon by the power of the prince of demons. Now, there's two parallel accounts. Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12 also give us insight into what's going on here. And each of them, Mark says that it was the scribes who accused Jesus of this. And Matthew 12 say it was the Pharisees. So it's the religious people, by and large, who are saying, you're casting out demons by the prince of demons. That Jesus is a puppet. Of Satan. That's a pretty high claim, isn't it? Or perhaps they're even accusing him of something far more sinister, of being evil incarnate. And Jesus reads them like a book, doesn't he? And he opens his mouth and he begins to speak to them. Again, Mark tells us that what Jesus is about to say is actually a parable, something he throws alongside to communicate a greater point. And he he says this parable, if you will, in verse 17 and 18. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Think back to Abraham Lincoln in the United States. You, the United States of America will not stand if you're literally shooting each other the south and the north. It's not going to stand. If you have a football team like the Steelers this afternoon, who knows if they'll, they probably won't win anyway, right? but they definitely won't win. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. If the offense and the defense are on the same field at the same time playing against each other, there is no parallel universe in which offense can play against defense and they're on the same team and they both when? It's just not going to work. And that's what Jesus is saying. You see the logic and what he's saying? You can't be actively fighting without falling. He's saying the kingdom of darkness doesn't have friendly fire. And it is a ridiculous claim to say that Jesus casts out a an evil demon by the power of evil. It just doesn't work. It's like having offense and defense on the field at the same exact time. It's ridiculous. And he furthers this with kind of a personal jab. In 19, he says, oh, and if, hey, by the way, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by evil, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. See, apparently, Jesus wasn't the only one who had cast out demons. We know this by reading the book of Luke. 
um, his followers had. And, but there's some extra biblical um, accounts as well, some um, resources that say uh, perhaps there were some Jewish exorcists, if you will, some often from the Pharisees. And Jesus kind of points at them and says, hey, by the way, if I'm doing this by evil, who are they doing it by? I have already proved that evil can't cast out evil. And um, <laughs> he says, they will be your judges. You see, these, these folks, they had made a very convenient concession for their own purposes and for their own people, hadn't they? So it's, it's like they were saying, Jesus casts out demons by evil, therefore he is evil. But, you know, our own people who do the exact same thing, of course they're not doing it according to the power of evil. A very convenient concession to accomplish their own purposes. Isn't that interesting? He's already proved the ridiculous nature of their claim. And Jesus, who knows their thoughts, points out the inconsistency, doesn't he? In their thinking, in their speaking, and in their believing. By whom do your sons cast them out? You see, their belief and their logic just didn't work together. And um, that's what Jesus is calling into question here, isn't it? And so as we turn this one, just to think about how do we apply this text to our lives today, sometimes, I know in my life I have inconsistencies like that. When what I'm saying or what I'm believing, I make personal concessions, well, that might be true, but in this one case, maybe it's not true. I might love my neighbor, but, you know, this whole serving them thing, maybe not. I might believe this Bible, but I don't read it. Or maybe I'm just going to tune out right now because I'm starting to hear something I don't really like. Or I justify something because someone I know or someone I care about has certain proclivities or tendencies. You know, I know such and such really is wrong, but so and so, you know, they're just so nice and caring that maybe that's really not always wrong. You see, that's precisely what Jesus is calling into question. He's picking out the inconsistencies and thought in life. Which, what inconsistencies are in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives that Jesus is starting to get his fingers on? That was the first response. The second um, seems far more simple. Right? Seems a lot better, doesn't it? What does the second group ask of Jesus. They don't accuse him of evil, do they? No, they say, it says that they were looking from him for another sign from heaven. What comes from heaven? Good things or bad things? Good things. They're looking for another sign from above. They are actually recognized, you know what, maybe this guy really is good. 
Maybe he really is doing something good. Maybe this power actually is a good power. It's perhaps even from above. They're on the right track, aren't they? But Jesus addresses them too. He also addresses them here in verse 20. Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is that if this, then that argument. If it is because of God that this evil demon leaves and is cast out, then something bigger is here. Then good is here. Then something better is here. You see what Jesus is doing? He's starting to to force them to see black and white, A and B, only two options. And he doesn't just say, if it's by God that I do this thing, but he uses a very interesting word. What is it? He says, if it's by the what of the finger of God. And this is really interesting, church. Why? Jesus is talking to a group of Jews who many of whom know much of their Old Testament far better than you and I ever will. And this finger of God language actually shows up from time to time here in the Old Testament. uh, Here are three examples. We have them on the screen for you to jot down if you want. The first, the psalmist writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Saying, God owns it all. God made it all. Everything we look up to and see in the sky beyond us is from God. One. And then, We go down to Exodus. You remember the the plagues, the ten plagues on Egypt? Well, this is really fascinating. Exodus 8, 18 says this. This is the third plague, the plague of gnats that's sent upon the land of Egypt. It says this. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians, the evil guys, said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Fascinating, is it not? That this God who created everything is actually involved in the affairs of people. And not only in the affairs of people, but beyond that, he actually has given them a law, Exodus 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. We call that the Ten Commandments. And God himself wrote them with, the, he says, the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments the perfect lawgiver around whom they would establish their entire society on these Ten Commandments. God himself wrote them with his finger. And where God's hand extends, this is Jesus' argument in Luke 11, where God's hand extends, his kingdom goes. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. Where the finger of God is, the kingdom of God is. So if if indeed Jesus' work and his miracles are from the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is here. And how many places can the power come from to cast out a demon? Only two. It's from evil or it's from good. It's from Satan or it's from God. And Jesus has already proven it can't be from one of those places. And so there are two options. And it is impossible for evil to be the answer in how Jesus performed this miracle. And therefore, what has come? This is what Jesus is saying. What has come before him? What has come to everyone? It's the kingdom of God. There's only two options. Good and evil, kingdom of God, and kingdom of Satan, or the evil one. And Jesus goes on to tell us something about this kingdom, doesn't he? Um, Mark also calls this part a parable. And so he he says, uh, oftentimes folks call this the strong man passage, which is basically you can't rob someone who's stronger than you. Translation, if you're out there in coffee and cookies and big Jim Hemelrick over here has the last cookie that you want, I'm not going to fight him for it. <laughs> no one here would try to fight him for it, except maybe Patty and little Palin. <laughs> right? That's it. You can't go against the strong man, unless you first bind him or attack him. And then you may plunder his house. Now, in this passage, the strong man is not God. The strong man is Satan. He is the one who's been allowed to operate on this earth. The prince of this age, as Peter writes, who goes around this earth. He is the strong man, and Jesus has come to do what? Tie him up and attack him so that then you can steal the cookie. Then you can plunder his goods. The finger of God has come, and therefore the kingdom of God has come. And when the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan clash, one of them's going to come out on top. And Jesus has already begun to tie up the strong man, to attack the strong man, to attack Satan by casting out this demon, by healing the sick. Now, to be clear, there's still something yet that we have to come to in the Gospel of Luke when the power of Satan will, in a sense, be demolished on the cross and the power of death when Jesus dies on the cross and comes back to life. That still has yet to come, but the kingdom of God is already here. You know, um, by the way, one proof of this, church, is the fact that we're here together. The fact that many of you here believe that Jesus is Lord. Colossians chapter 1, we sang about this earlier. Chapter 113, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Talk about proof that the kingdom of God is here. If you're a Christian, you are living proof that he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. 
we were part of that kingdom. Why? Because there's only two kingdoms, A or B. And that's Jesus' point. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is what? Say it out loud. Against me. Whoever does not gather with me, what? How many options? Just two. Now, sometimes um, we can get this confused with where we were earlier, um, or late in the summer, excuse me, with chapter 9, verse 50, when it seems like Jesus says something opposite. He says, if they're not against you, they're for you. But if you go back and read that passage, Jesus um, is clearly talking about people who are in his name. He's talking about the people who are under the banner of Jesus Christ in chapter 9. If they're not against you and they're for me, I'm sorry, if they're not against you and they're following me, then they're for you. But here Jesus has someone very different in mind, doesn't he? He's talking about everybody else, people who do not cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say that people who are not for Jesus, people who do not believe in him, what are they doing? They're being against him, and they're scattering. You see, he's saying there are only two options. There is no neutral ground in all this world. There's no Switzerland in the king of heaven. How on earth Switzerland dodges every, everything? No one really knows, at least I don't. But there is no Switzerland in heaven. A or B. Admiring Jesus simply isn't good enough. In fact, again, that language, what does it say? If you're not gathering with Jesus, you are actively working against him. That's strong language, isn't it? We don't like that kind of language. But he who is not with me, he who is not working alongside me, he who has not made me the center of his life is actually working against me. Even the bystanders or the people on the sidelines. There's only two options, only two actions, gathering and scattering. There is indeed no neutral ground. If we turn our attention to today, we often see this kind of admiring from a distance relatively frequently, don't we? Folks, I hear this time and time again, it seems. Folks say, oh, they're going to church now. That's good for them. It works for them. They'll get good morals there in church. They'll live a good life. They'll be a good citizen. But Jesus is actually saying, there's no such thing as that. There is even admiration of what's happening here without Jesus is being against him. If you're not for Jesus, then you're against him. You know, perhaps um, that's where it might be today. Admiring Jesus from afar. And yes, he was a good teacher. Maybe even he was a real man. He has good things to teach us. But he's saying, there's no place for that in his kingdom. You're in 
or you're out. And if indeed he was a good man, then may I invite you to listen to what he says. To think about your own life. Are you with him? Do you trust that the Lord of all the earth, as we've read and as we've sung earlier, took on this human flesh to bring his kingdom, to destroy the kingdom of darkness, and to win people like you and me back to himself? Do you believe that? Or have you just been admiring him from afar and say, you know, just enough to get good morals and live a good life? May I invite you to make him the center of everything, to be for him. You know, this is the kind of thing that you don't have to wait until the very end of the service. This is the kind of thing you can do right now in your heart of hearts and in your mind and and just reach out to him right now quietly in your seat and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life and I confess that I have been against you for so long. And now I want to be with you and for you. This, is, this can happen right here and right now. And certainly, afterwards, you're more than welcome to come forward. The elders will be up here up front if you want to learn more about it or want to pray with them. Or even many of the vo- folks here in this room would love that opportunity to talk to and pray with you. So church, I submit to you that people who embody morality, who trumpet good morals, according to what Jesus says here, are actively scattering that which Jesus Christ himself gathers, are actively against him. It's a hard truth, but it's precisely what Jesus himself is saying. Let's let's continue in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. I have no idea what that means. Seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You see, for some reason, this demon leaves. And in a sense, that kind of symbolizes good things often happen in life. And what does that person do? They put themselves in order. They clean up. They do some spring cleaning, if you will. And then the unclean spirit comes back and says, hmm, interesting. Finds it vacant is what happens. The heart is vacant. Vacancy of your heart and vacancy of your life is just downright dangerous. Because vacancy of your heart and vacancy of your life is temporary. As an example, many of you um, have probably seen people sober up or clean up for nine months. They're clean. And far too often, unless there's something else to replace, what happens? There's a relapse, and often it's far worse off, is it not? 
something will always fill our lives. You know, many of you know I've been remodeling a house, and uh, when I purchased it, it had been vacant for some time. Now, a number of weeks ago, I was there, and I was just coming up the steps, and um, I found this on the floor. Uh-huh, you know what that is. kind of want to carry a shotgun with me sometimes, just for these little spotted lanternflies, this invasive species. You know, but there's one, you squish it, you squash it, and you move on. I, um, I was doing some other work. I just gonna put, it's going to be simple. I was going to put on a small piece of drywall and put up a new one. And that's when I found this. See, look closely on this short video. Mm-hmm. Carpenter ants. Yeah, I don't want to find those. <laughs> Carpenter ants. And this vacant home, something else moved in. Those guys are the worst part. Did you know they bite? Oh. <laughs> For another time. Um, <laughs> I am blessed that my cousin is an exterminator, and um, the house is in good shape, I promise now. (laughs) But when I wasn't there, when the house was vacant, something else moved in. And in this case, it was destroying the place. And that's precisely what happens in our own spiritual lives, is it not? I didn't even tell you about all the silverfish. (laughs) Whew. Those things are weird. (laughs) There is no such thing as long-term vacancy of the heart or of the life. You can't read enough self-help books to clean yourself up. You can't whitewash the outside of the tomb of your heart or of your life because your life is a house, your heart is a home. We see people trying to reform their lives all the time. All right, now I'm going to go to church but they don't fill themselves with Christ. And years later, you know what they say? I done did try that church thing. And the state of that person is worse off than at first. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Because you can't indwell yourself. Try to live in yourself. You, you can't indwell yourself. You can't simply kick out the bad without replacing it with the good. you got to expel the carpenter ants of your lives and replace it. Replace the unclean with that which is stronger and with that which is purer. Something must fill the house or else something else will fill the house. There's nothing you and I can do in and of ourselves right, to re- replace the previous with something better. And the hard part is I just can't say no. None of us can. We can't just just say no. We can't read enough self-help books, but you know what we can do is we look at application and we think about replacing. The Bible tells us how to do that. And it really is simple I feel like we always talk about it, and I feel like it's a Sunday school answer, but it's to read your Bible and just to say, Lord, <laughs> replace me, replace me, just to come before his throne. If you have trouble sitting in one place, go for a walk as you pray, and just pray that the Lord will replace. 
that which is in your life with him. And friends, to read our Bibles, the living, inactive word, and just constantly ask him to replace us. Because it's a matter of indwelling. And this is beautiful to you, Christian. For those of us who have believed on Christ, Romans 8, listen to this. Listen to the similar language. Paul writes, and he's speaking to Christians. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit but if, excuse me, but if Christ is in you, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if Christ is in you. You see that replacement language? You have to replace it with Christ. You have to replace it with the Spirit of God. And some of you might be saying, I've done that. Well, um, this is convicting for me, I know, as we look at applying this. What about people in our lives? Do we just hope someone will start to do the right thing or sober up, live a moral life? Do I want my society to just, just to go back to times when it was simpler or more moral? Do we yearn for wars no longer to be around? Is that our pro- are those the primary things? Those are good things. But we can't do that in and of ourselves. We're seeing the results of doing that in and of ourselves, aren't we? It's a matter of, do I care more that the people in my life and the, in my country and this entire world will just reform themselves or that the entire world and their people, that they will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord? Is that my primary concern? Or is it something else? Is that the focus of my prayers or just that things will get better? So let's just be thinking of that as we go to prayer this week and pray particular, praying for particular people and for praying for particular situations in our world. There are a lot. That the knowledge of the Lord will fill and that his glory will come over this whole earth and will replace the hearts that are against him. There's only two options. And in all of this, we see, finally, the third response. It's a response of a, a woman who recognizes the beauty of Christ's work and of his words. And she can't help but to blurt out the third response that we see this morning. It's verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, this is one of those proud mother moments. They're good, are they not? This woman saying, You're a mom You've brought honor to your mom. She must be so proud of you. But you notice what Jesus does. You know, he, 
doesn't rebuke her per se. Now, some will take this to the extreme. Um, Our Roman Catholic friends would say, well, because of this, we need to pray to her and to venerate her. But no, that's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't rebuke this woman, but he gently refocuses her attention to a bigger reality, which is what? If you hear my word and do it, those are the people who are really blessed. By the way, what did Mary do? She heard the word of the Lord when the angel came, and she treasured up all these things in her heart, did she not? And that's the second thing. Blessed are you today who hear this word. We've been beating this drum a lot, haven't we? Hear it and do it. Hear it and do it. And that's because Luke constantly brings that. Jesus himself says, hear my word and do my word. Mary did it. And blessed are you today who hear this word of the Lord and do it. He actually blessed alongside with her. And that's the good news this morning, isn't it? That there is one who is stronger than the enemy. That's stronger than even evil itself. That's stronger than the domain of darkness, which we see in our world today, particularly these past 24 hours. And that Jesus himself clearly taught there is no neutral ground. You're with me or you're against me. For me or not. And the good news is that those who seek him, those who are really with Jesus, you know what they get? When they get blessed, if you hear this word and you do it, you get blessed. And you know what that blessing looks like? The blessing looks like the creator of everything, God himself, comes to take up residence in your heart and in your soul to live within you. You see, the heart can't be vacant. Is he living there or is he not? No spiritual vacuums, if you will. The promise is for those who trust God that he will indeed come and live in you. This last song that we're about to sing is about that very thing. It was actually my alarm this morning. It's one of three songs I use as an alarm, and it's a rich one. As uh, the music team comes, I just want to read some of these words that we are about to sing. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. See, there's no neutrality in heaven, no Switzerland's. I was blinded by my sin, and I had no ears to hear your voice. I didn't know your love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. But then notice, then your spirit gave me life and took up residence. So Lord, help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, occupy our lowly hearts. Lord, may we just not seek to get rid of bad things, but rather to fill our hearts, Lord, to lean on you that your spirit will come in and live within us because we can't do it on our own.
Lord, may you and you alone occupy our hearts, our minds, every part of us. Help us to live this life dependent on your grace. In the name of Jesus, and for his kingdom, and for his glory, all of God's people said. Would you stand with me?